and welcome to Bureau Happold in Conversation, the podcast where we raise the big topics facing engineering and construction today. In this episode, we are looking at something that doesn't always get the attention it deserves when we design buildings. I'm talking about happiness. As Ben Channon, one of my guests today, puts it in his book, can good design truly make us happier? Given that we spend over 80% of our time in buildings, shouldn't we have a better understanding of how they make us feel? Why does bad design make us feel sad? And what impact does that have on our mental health, particularly amongst young people? Most importantly, what can we do as engineers and architects to make happy design a priority in all of our projects? To answer these questions and more, I have a fantastic panel of experts ready to give their views. Thank you all for joining me um, and I will let you introduce yourselves. Hi, Victoria. So I'm Ben Channon. Um, I'm an architect at Sale Architecture. My role there is also uh, head of well-being. Um, that encompasses a few things, kind of from bringing well-being and healthy design into all of our projects, as well as championing good health and well-being for our staff and pushing research in this area as well. So obviously, um, you mentioned my book, Happy by Design, um, which, which looks at how buildings affect our happiness and our mental health. And we're also researching now the impact that particularly our homes have on our physical health as well. Fantastic, thank you. And Mike, over to you. Hi, uh, my name is Mike Entwistle. I'm a partner at Bureau Happold. Um, I head up our higher education work uh, across the globe and I'm seeing some fascinating and in many cases disturbing trends about how student mental health is being impacted by a variety of, of themes um, and the one that we're obviously interested in how the environment that they live and learn in can affect outcomes. And we've got a lot of fascinating material we can talk about as we go through the talk. A lot of themes that we're exposing, we'll be exploring actually play through into um, other sectors and other buildings typologies as well. Fantastic. Adam, over to you. Uh, Adam Paul, I head up something called Special Projects in Bureau Happold. I think there's a lot of things in the building industry pointing to the behaviour that follows from buildings. Fantastic. Okay, thank you all for joining me and we're going to start off with a simple question. Can good design make us happier? And I think, Ben, you're the best person to answer that question. Yeah, absolutely, Victoria. Well, the simple answer is yes, good design can make us happier. Uh, We've got lots of scientific evidence for this now. There's been research going on into this uh, in the world of environmental psychology for a long time now. And we can fundamentally demonstrate that the sort of environment you put somebody in um, has quite a big impact on on how they feel, how they behave, how they react. So, you know, a space can be uplifting and make us feel positive. Similarly, a a space that's designed badly can uh, make us quite frustrated. It can um, even make us feel quite anxious or or down. So, um, yes, the good, good design definitely can make us feel happier. And um, we we know generally people spend between 80 and 90% of their time indoors. Um, at the moment, obviously, that's that's quite a lot higher, um, probably pretty close to 100% for most of us. That's that's clearly going to be um, having a, having an impact on people. And I'm sure most people listening to this podcast will have, will have started to tune into a lot of the things about their home that are either working really well for them. Um, maybe they've got nice high ceilings or big windows or lots of plants or natural materials in there their home or their apartment but there's probably also things that are really not working well for them and that are really having quite a negative impact on how they feel in their home so uh, yes in simple answer design can make us happier or less happy i really agree with what ben said i think there are a number of aspects to that 
One is this idea of um, popular psychology, which is, a, as I understand, it's a new bit of psychology that's been around since the 80s, and it's looked at what you might, psychology up to this point had all been about making people not feel unhappy, and this is, well, what could you do to make them feel happy? I can't immediately remember all the figures, but it's something like that of happiness, there's about 50% which is genetic, and you can't do much about that. There's 10% that's a sort of intense, highly experiential bit, and there's 40% which kind of follows from the environment. And this seems to be our playground. There's a lot we can do within this scope to try and bring make people happier. But it's really about arranging things so people... Um, meet and rub off with each other and get affirmation from each other. I think it's it's a new science. I'm not sure who's really looking at it, but I think there's a lot to play for here. Have you come across much of this, Mike? I think there's, uh, there's a number of themes that one can track through this sort of work about designing for happiness or designing for, for mental well-being. There's plenty of evidence to suggest that daylight, ventilation, good quality sleep, etc., etc., promotes general well-being and general mental health. I think perhaps what's less and less well understood and certainly less quantified is how those themes that Adam you were particularly picking on about social interaction and avoiding loneliness um, have a massive impact on the way people perceive themselves and the way they interact with um, with their lifestyle and how it affects them. As the people on the call will know, we've been doing a lot of work particularly to do with student lifestyles where people have generally left home and moving in with uh, into a, a strange environment at a stage in their lives when they are you know developing very quickly as people finding their own identity etc etc and what we've seen in a number of programs we've done whether it's a survey of 5,000 students or whether it's some very close engagement with clients and the designers is the value of personal interaction but also the value of the quality of a journey whether it's through a building across a campus through a city and there's any number of themes that come into that um, that are really really important finding a way of benchmarking that and attributing cause and effect when there's so many other parts of what contribute to people's mental well-being and happiness is an incredibly complex thing to disassociate but I think there's certainly masses and massive anecdotal evidence that picks up on all of these themes as promoting you know happy being well-being uh, outcomes etc et I was gonna I was gonna pick up on that Mike because I'm um, just looking at some of the recent figures from UK universities there's been a 20% increase in students with a mental health health diagnosis. There's been a 79% increase in student suicides between 2007 and 2015. Just how big is this sort of mental health problem in the higher education sector? And would you say it's just a UK problem or is it worldwide? It, it tends to apply most in those environments where, A, where students move away from home for university as a routine, and B, where uh, the education, higher education has become cash-driven. That puts a lot of people under pressure, thinking they have to get value for money from what they're doing at university. It puts expectations on the universities themselves. And we're seeing that particularly in the UK and the US, again, where they're very competitive societies. I think one of the challenges in the UK is that there's a common perception that if you don't get a 2-1 for your degree, then you failed, and that's driven by grade inflation, but also driven by people's expectations. I'm, I'm paying all this money, therefore I, I must get a good degree. We're seeing it most in the UK and the US, but it will apply in other societies as well. I think we see it in 
um, some of the newer very competitive societies, particularly in the Far East, and that often occurs at school level um, as well as at university level. So the, the competition there is to get into a good university. We should be a bit cautious about quoting suicide figures, though. I mean, one of the arguments is university students were insulated from the pressures of general society and all that we're really seeing is that this insulation is less effective and the pressures on general society have just caught up with students rather than anything particular about universities. But then I think there's also arguments that argue it the other way. And I suppose the question that we want to raise here is what can we as engineers and architects do to to assuade this trend, to to help uh, reduce levels of, of, uh, of mental health problems in, in university? Well, in, in young people in particular, but particularly when they when they move away from home and they are at university. What, what are we doing and what what should we be doing? I, I think when you look at the work that's being done in the sector generally, um, there are two key initiatives in the UK. There's the University's UK Step Change Framework, which came out a few years ago now and was um, aimed at raising the profile of this issue and providing, obviously, a framework for universities to develop their own plans on the back of. Student Minds have recently released a charter that, again, sets out how universities can engage with this issue and improve their outcomes. I think the challenge with both of those is that their reference to the physical environment is, let's say, passing. In the most recent document, which is the Student Minds Charter, in a document of 60 or 70 pages, there, there are two pages on the environment. There's lots of other references to the importance of the environment, but there's not really much specific guidance about how that can be um, improved. I think one of the other issues is when you look at university league tables, none of the university league tables in the UK or beyond actually have any questions or any reference in them to the quality of the environment. And the, I think these are real failings of, of the system that we have in terms of how people choose universities and league tables. And we know from survey data that many, many students put a university on their list, visit it and reject it because of the quality of the environment, whatever that means. I think in terms of, as engineers and designers, what we can do to improve these outcomes, it comes down to the themes that we were discussing earlier. There's, there's a lot of, you know, there's the easily quantifiable things, you know, ventilation, daylight, views, things like that. But then there are the really, really important social aspects of making students feel that they belong. And that fundamentally comes down to designing to avoid loneliness and designing to improve interaction between people. Unfortunately, the data does seem to show it, it sort of is getting worse, really. Um, there's a, there was a poll that was in The Guardian last year, um, 38,000 uh, students, and they reported that um, half of the students who took part had um, reported thoughts of self-harm, which is double what it was um, two years previously. So unfortunately, it does seem that it, it's um, an issue that is getting worse. And as Adam pointed out, it's very difficult to, to, to argue whether this is um, a student-specific problem or something that's feeding in from broader a broader part of society and i think it's important to to point out that um absolutely that there's a lot more pressures and issues potentially on young people now than than there ever was certainly um we're better connected than we ever have been electronically um which is obviously uh, ha has its positives and its negatives but one thing that it is doing is it's breeding um more competitiveness and that that's a kind of a word that's already been used quite a lot today competition it's people people are competing now to have to, whether they they've got the best lifestyle or whether they're getting the best grades or they're at the the best university whatever it might be um i'd say people are comparing themselves due to social media more than they ever ever have been um, and, 
and with that brings a whole whole range of pressures um so i think you're 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 absolutely right mike part of the solution does lie in encouraging real world socialization as well getting people away from purely socializing on um, electronic devices and, and social media and finding ways through design to encourage real interactions um, but yeah as you, as you also mentioned there's there's a whole um, raft of other things which which we know impact uh, how we feel in spaces so that um, not just to the daylight and ventilation but even even things like color choices the types of materials we use um, how much control we give to people can we encourage people to be more active to exercise more to maybe move around buildings more um, there's loads and loads of things that we can do as designers to to improve um, mental well-being and and overall physical well-being um, in buildings so just um, just picking up on that ben you talked about colors um yeah. what particular colors uh, is there a sort of a sort of prescriptive happy sad color palette or or does it no yeah. I, I wish it was as simple as that um, <laughs> you've actually given me a great opportunity to um promote my latest piece in oh. um, in work in mind which you didn't, didn't even know that was an i didn't even club. know i didn't even um, know no, I, I actually so i do a monthly column for work in mind um magazine online and um, this this month I wrote about colour so it is very interesting I, I think the traditional approach has been sort of slap on bright uh, in quotes happy colours um, and it'll make people feel better but it's not just as simple as that you know we, we know from colour theory that um, different colours achieve different things so colours like yellows and oranges yes they're very bright and they're uplifting and energising but actually we maybe we don't want that everywhere you probably don't want a kind of bright fluorescent yellow in your bedroom because it's a space for relaxation so uh, in, in quiet to karma spaces we probably want to tailor it to you know more soft kind of greens and blues and colors that are going to help us relax um in other creative spaces we we might want kind of um, secondary colors like purples which is kind of a combination of um the like energizing um reds but also kind of more calm focused blue so yeah we we, we know from color theory that there's lots of different um effects we can get through through color um, on people's mood and, and the way they behave and um, and for the for the skeptics out there there was a really interesting study um, in that took place in Tokyo um, I think it was it was over about a 10 year period um, and they looked at replacing a lot of standard lighting with blue lighting because there was a big problem with suicide rates at train stations people people taking their own lives by jumping in front of trains and they actually found that by replacing the normal LED lighting with blue lighting um, they, they saw quite a substantial decrease in suicide rates um, across I think it was about 74 train stations so there's there's a growing body of evidence um it's images as well that has this effect absolutely uh, yeah so I mean, the work in hospitals was trying to get faster throughput by reducing stress so there was um an architectural fashion for building in um greenery and um lots of fountains or water features and then they made the leap where you just needed these things in paintings on the wall and you got more or less the same effect yeah, yeah absolutely and even in the well building standards um you can get points for including nature patterns things like that we, we know that the human mind it likes complexity but the kind of complexity that we can understand and digest so we don't really like complete total random chaos we like patterns that come out of nature which is why you may have read about fractals and the the fact that we mm. naturally quite like fractal patterns because these all these all go back to nature and you know the idea of the golden ratio and the fractal patterns that occur naturally within within nature and, and that then comes into when you look particularly look at buildings a lot of buildings from 100 200 300 years ago uh, particularly the sort of high profile ones 
have very, very complex facades with lots and lots of detail, and particularly in stonework and things like that. And, you know, I think there's a subconscious reason behind that, that that draws you in. It draws your mind into actually looking at the detail and giving it some depth that helps your, your well-being. It, what's interesting in the well-building framework is that it does have a section called mind. And the only area is actually in there to do with really what the buildings or the facilities do or what the design can enable. It's got things like um, promote mental health and well-being through a commitment to mental health education, so that's about the operation. But the ones that look at the, um, the building itself or the facilities, it has access to nature, it has restorative spaces, and it has, again, enhanced access to nature. So what's interesting, it's about nature and it's about places that promote restoration and relief from mental fatigue and stress. So what's interesting in that is it doesn't really touch on some of these social aspects that we've been discussing. And that is really, it's really interesting to see how these things drop out as soon as you start assessing them. But I, I mean, I wanted to say a bit more on the social bit. I mean, taking what you'd said previously, Ben, a little further. I mean, I, I, I get the point that um, social media is in the dock on this, and we think um, everyone's life is visible, and this isn't causing stress, but it supports people um, in a more isolationary mode, and also when they're thrown into the environment of a university designed from the Middle Ages for a community of scholars, they don't need to give it all. They don't need to sink or swim, they can partially commit and then go back to rooms, which of course um, are all decked out with ensuite, and keep another life going. So it looks like the same sort of thing is happening in the university and all their friends appear to be doing this and anyone observing it looks like things are normal, but they aren't just putting, they aren't putting quite as much in as previous generations did and not getting quite as much out. And then there's less friction, I think, in how they live their lives within the university accommodation, and that doesn't pull people together. Part of the answer is you're designing the whole system that seems to be stressing students up before they arrive is we should be able to design buildings and environments to help unwind this process. Well, what's interesting in that is if you look at what um, a, quote, ideal, unquote, uh, study bedroom for a student might be in their own mind and maybe in their parents' mind, if money were no object. Yes, where this is going. Yep. yes yeah, you end up with a studio bedroom with the world's best broadband connection. But that's very likely to be isolating. And actually, in many ways, the worst accommodation might be the best of people. So shared bathrooms, shared dining facilities, not very good broadband in your bedroom, but fantastic broadband in the communal spaces. And when you look at some of the different models of how student accommodation is designed, you go back to the, um, you know, the sort of collegiate model that's been around for many hundreds of years. And the traditional Oxbridge colleges have got courtyards, but they also have bedroom layouts that are based on staircases rather than corridors. Because when you're going up and down a staircase, you're always turning corners. You're much more likely to interact with people than if you're just going from A to B down a corridor. And it's a much more social way of of living well, and they force you to sit everyone to eat together and often sit next to random people yes exactly exactly yeah it, it's really interesting it's something we've been trying to push actually through a lot of our work uh, at a sale in um, in terms of built to rent and, and co-living as well actually uh, in december i was up at um, one of our projects in um, in salford which we we did with granger and that was called clippers key and, and one of the things we were really trying to do there we did all the interiors for that and we designed the interiors in, in such a way that we really were trying to create spaces that would bring people together 
together and encourage people to use them so it's all that stuff we've talked about lots of natural light and ventilation and plants but it's about making the most of um, spaces which otherwise might go to waste as well so funnily enough we found um, in a lot of our projects that some of the most um, used spaces the spaces where you get the most social interaction are ones which are kind of quite unglamorous so things like you know can you take a laundry facility your laundry room and make it into a space where it really encourages people to interact you know it's you've got tvs in there you've got um, your ironing boards you've got it's, it's encouraging people to actually spend time in that space because we know every single person in that building no matter how they live their life well you hope is going to need to use that um, that laundry room at least once a week so it's it's a it's about trying to harness opportunities where you might not actually normally see them and as you were saying mike trying to even when we come down to designing the layout of buildings where we place cores and things like that can we try to design layouts in such a way um, that really encourages these chance interactions and we found places like um, cinema rooms really really good for that as well um, some of the cinema rooms in the in the developments that we've we've done are they're often the kind of real scrag end spaces you can't do anything with they get no daylight um, they're buried away in, in the depths of the floor plate but actually you know they can be quite a small space it doesn't have to cost a lot of money but you find loads of residents gather there maybe to watch the Champions League on a Tuesday night or to watch Bake Off on a Wednesday whatever it might be and you you get all kinds of different people from throughout the buildings um, socialising who who may otherwise never normally cross paths. This all sounds really ideal and lovely having cinema rooms and breakout spaces and everything but when you're dealing with universities nowadays the cash is not sort of cash is not abundant is it you know all the universities are a bit strapped for cash Um, how do you deal with that challenge? So there's, there's a few approaches, really. I mean, the, the first thing that I generally say is that actually designing for well-being doesn't have to cost lots more money. Um, the first the first thing you've got to make sure you do is integrate it right from the outset. And like anything, if you if you try to sort of post-rationalise a building, if you try to convert a building, the same with sustainability. If you try to make a building sustainable after the fact, it's going to cost you a lot of money. You're going to have to pay for a lot of add-ons. It's going to be hard work. But if you can integrate well-being-led design right from the outset, and obviously that's something we're trying to do now at a sale, then it you can do it without having to break the bank. And, you know, things like cinema rooms, they might sound expensive, but actually, you know, you can get a pretty huge tv for less than a thousand pounds now get some seating in there you know paint the walls and actually that's pretty much all you need and as i said it can be taking advantage of um a really pretty useless part of the building which doesn't get much daylight but um the other the other side of it is as well making the making the long-term argument to um whether it's the university the developer um that actually you're you're going to make long term it's going to benefit the university right because um, we know studies by Deloitte show that actually the earlier you invest in um, well-being and in mental health then actually the better return on investment you get so um, if we invest right up front creating a great environment that's going to minimize and reduce these mental health problems then the cost saving that that's going to result in down the line for the university could potentially be very very large indeed. I think it's important to recognise that that there, you know, there are there are bigger things to look at here that you can take a bigger approach. So many institutions are very inefficient in the way they use space. So an approach that actually relooks at the way space is used and and thinks about its utilisation, because that's where a lot of the big money is in terms of estates efficiencies. But when you look at the way space is used, many buildings, most buildings 
can actually release space, which actually really, in effect releases funding by improving efficiencies. And I think one of the things that will happen when we come out of the COVID-19 crisis, whether it's in three months or six months or whatever, is we will all have got used to operating in a very, very different way in our lives, whether it's general oh, social yeah, interaction yeah. or whether it's our work interactions. And actually, a lot of people will realize that with resilient IT, provided you know people well, you can have a lot of these interactions virtually. Now, that means that there'll be more vacant office spaces, space might become cheaper. So you can start to investigate the way these things are used and release space for other purposes that might be for social purposes. The other tool that you can use that is cheap in actually making spaces work better is furniture. Furniture that encourages people to sit and collaborate, puts them against people or with people that they might not normally see. We probably need to be clear. I mean, one of the things that came out from that very good Guardian study is that um, mental health problems seem to get more intense the further through the university you go. And in some ways, dealing with students in student halls is, is the easy bit. It's where you've got a more distributed community that is spending a long time traveling and maybe doing a second job. I agree that space can work, but it doesn't have the same uh, ability to capture these people, I think. And um, I, I think one of the, one of the challenges that, that we see, particularly in large cities, is that student travel issue. I have a family member who, um, in their first year at university, found themselves a 50-minute bus ride through not very nice areas of London to get to university. She was studying an arts subject, which meant she didn't have very much timetable. And one got the feeling that not much thought had been given to where people were living in regard to the course they were studying and what their lifestyle might be. And again, I think you know London is a very specific example, but you get... You, you can see this probably in many large cities that the commuter students, what home do they have when they're actually at the campus or at the well, university? Well, this is why your work on Exeter is so good, Mike. Yeah. I mean, that great roof just, I think, brings everyone in as soon as they arrive, or it's the yeah. obvious place you go when you do arrive. For those of you who didn't know about it, this is the Exeter University Forum project, which we completed for about five or six years ago now. And it was a heart for the campus. It's a high-achieving university. The campus is absolutely beautiful, but it didn't really have a central place for people to gather and be. And it's transformed student life as well as being a great, a great recruiting drive. One of the other projects we worked on, which does promote social interaction in a, in a, a smaller scale way, is a student accommodation building we did at St. Anthony's College in Oxford. It's a postgraduate college, so the whole interaction thing and student life is different from undergraduate lifestyle. People have different working patterns, and they come from a wider variety of backgrounds, particularly with more international students. And there, within the accommodation, the kitchen and social areas were placed so that they were on the way from the staircase to the bedrooms so that when you were going to your bedroom, you had a simple option just to stick your head through the door or just look through. Actually, the doors were partially glazed. You could look through a vision panel and see who was in the kitchen and have these chance interactions rather than the kitchen being buried down the end of a corridor, which is a more common model in many student accommodation flats. So that's just two examples of, of the way the designs that we're involved with um, improved student interaction and lifestyles. Um, we've developed a number of analytical tools that we're using in a variety of sectors, whether it's higher ed or whether it's a commercial office environment or research um, laboratory environments that enable us to track how people work and behave and interact. And we're also looking at it at a campus level with a number of universities. Um, and we'll have some information on that in a few months time when we get cracking on harvesting the data. 
I wanted to just touch on a slightly different area of happiness and how we build it into our projects. Earlier today, I spoke to Jean Hewitt, Senior Inclusive Design Consultant at Bureau Happold. She told me that designing in happiness is not a straightforward process for those with additional needs and that the way we all experience buildings is different and that for those with mental health issues or a physical disability, choice and control over the environment were the most important factors in whether the building was a happy one. Here's what she had to say. Yes, of course. Uh, Inclusive design is really about encouraging consideration of all aspects of human need when we're designing or managing buildings. And and so good mental health and, and happiness, as we call it, is a critical component of human well-being. So we need to recognise that we're all unique and that people will experience environments differently for various reasons. So the key to this is really not about making all environments the same, but providing an element of choice and control. So, for example, many people have sensory or neurological processing differences, and that can make you feel like sensory bombardment and overload in some spaces, whereas others might feel those same spaces are stimulating and exciting. So people who are neurodivergent rather than neurotypical will have significantly higher levels of poor mental health because our environments do not meet their day-to-day needs. Whilst environments cannot directly cure or cause a mental health condition in isolation, there's no doubt that they have a very big part to play in our mental health and well-being. And that's everything from the ability to exercise within the spaces we're in uh, physically, but also mentally to feel calm, to feel focused when we need to, but also to enjoy communication and social space as well. Thank you, Jean. As you say, we all recognise and know buildings that bring us a sense of calm. The big challenge now for all of us is making sure every building is designed with that focus in mind. I think perhaps before we finish, it would be interesting to look at this from a wider um, a wider viewpoint. What you know, this is what we're doing at Your Happel. This is what you're doing, Ben. What do you think the next steps should be industry wide? Uh, just to jump in, I think the industry would be well placed if we could just gather more information. I mean, the challenge is you can have a sense of how a building can be different, but it's hard to get people to um, design the building along how you think it should be, the prototype. Um, so we need to chip away at it, and that could be an industry-wide collaborative effort. I, I, I come back to two things. The first one is that when we look specifically at mental health issues and how they're recorded in universities, as far as I'm aware at the moment, and it might be moving to this, but as far as I'm aware, there isn't a standard reporting methodology across universities which that enables you to compare, for instance, campus versus city universities, teaching versus research, arts versus science students, to see where it is you might want to target your effort. And the other um, issue which I was referring to earlier is that actually university league tables, again, pay no attention at all to the quality of the environment. And having some way of benchmarking that based on student feedback um, would be really, really powerful in a way of actually drawing people's attention to that. Fantastic. And Ben, final thoughts from you? Yeah, absolutely. So agree with, with both of those points, really. Um, I, I would say that the, the positive thing is that we um, we are seeing movement in the right direction. Um, you will have all undoubtedly seen kind of the way um, that mental health is being portrayed in the media now. It's, it's changed enormously over even the last five years. 
Um, we are definitely starting to get more interest in the idea of well-being designing for health. I think at the moment, um, it's um, as kind of Mike's alluded to, it's easier to demonstrate physical health. It's easier to demonstrate that something is going to be of benefit to our physical health. You know, we can we can show categorically that asbestos is bad for us and is going to do us harm. Um, whereas when it comes to mental health, those things are a little bit harder to demonstrate. And certainly while we've got the research coming out of studies, there hasn't been a lot of uh, there's not a lot of finished product yet, which and, and, and certainly that post occupancy evaluation really, really needs to happen. But what we're seeing is um, an energy from the bottom up. So consumers are becoming more interested and have a better understanding of, of well-being and mental health. And similarly, we are actually seeing pressures coming from the top now from from funders, from um, big organizations and from universities um, that, you know, they realize that mental health is something that really you can't ignore. It has, it has to be addressed. And so thankfully, it's those two forces are going to meet in the middle, I believe. And um, eventually we will get to a point where we talk about the impact, the mental health impact that every single building is going to have at the very outset of the design process. If, if I can make one one more point, is that actually active support for people with mental health issues is expensive and resources are scarce, and it only tends to reach those who know they have an issue and look for help. If you improve the environment, then it improves outcomes for everyone. And that's a lovely way to, if you improve the environment, it improves the outcomes for everyone. I think that sums it up pretty well. Thank you so much, all of you, for joining me. You have been listening to Bureau Happold in Conversation. Catch up with the rest of our conversations on Google Play, iTunes, Amazon Alexa, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, everyone, and goodbye. Goodbye.